today for this passage. We're going to look at it, and you might be, you maybe have grown up in church, and so you've read this passage so many times, and you're very familiar at why it's significant, but we're going to go over it again. And there might be people here or watching online that have never read through this passage that don't know what Palm Sunday means, and they don't, you may not know why it's significant to our faith. Because really, if you, if you read the scriptures we're going to read without really understanding what it symbolized, it's kind of just a weird, a weird story, a weird story, a weird account that we would then say is so significant. Because what we're going to read, in case you haven't, if you don't know what it is, I'll, I'll give you the summary right now. We're going to see Jesus get on a donkey and walk into Jerusalem, and his disciples are praising him, and the crowds around him, millions, thousands of people are just freaking out, losing their mind, screaming, save us. And that's it. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so if you don't know that what it signifies, it just seems like an odd, an odd account. But we're going to go through it today. And this is um, a, a famous holiday, if you will. There's many art pieces depicting this moment. And so there's a lot of famous art marking this moment of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And so we're going to look at why we consider it so significant. And what's interesting is that what the disciples and the crowds were excited about, what they thought was happening, was not really what was happening. They misunderstood the moment. And so that's what makes this, this story so unusual, too, is that the thing they were celebrating, they, they kind of misunderstood, and they didn't really get what was going on. And so we're going to read through this together. Oh, I went way too far. We're going to read through it together. And it can be found in all four Gospels. So I'm going to read from the account of Luke today, because we've been in Luke this month. But you can see this account in any of them. And if you read all of them, you get a more fuller picture of what happened. Because each person, you know, notices different details. So as we're reading today, if you're like, where did she get that piece of information? Because I didn't see that in that particular text. Just know it came from one of the other Gospels. And I'll reference that as we go. The last thing before we actually read it uh, is that we need to understand that this exact moment when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they were celebrating Passover. And this is important. I'm going to try to just go through this quickly so we can get to the scripture. But Passover is what the Jewish people celebrated of a remembering a time in their history, and it can be found in Exodus 12, where God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so Passover is a very significant holiday. It's a very uh, important um, observance day that they, they follow. And so they, when they celebrate Passover, they remember how God took them out of slavery and into the land he promised them. And on this, in this particular account, God gave them instructions of the meal to make. And with the, the blood that was drained from the lamb that they were going to eat, they marked that on their doorways so that when God's judgment was coming to the Egyptians who were enslaving these people, who were mistreating these people, who would not let them be free, God's judgment was coming on them. He said, if you mark your doorway with that blood, I will know you are, you are one of my people, that you have faith in me, and my judgment is going to pass over you, and you won't be subject to that judgment. And so that's what, where they get the name Passover, and this is what they remember every year in Passover. Okay, so this is significant because Jesus came and was crucified and died during Passover, 
And he is our Passover lamb. He is the final lamb that had to be killed and that blood was shed so that we, if we accept that blood, then God's judgment passes over us. And we're not held responsible if, if we accept him for all the judgment that we're owed. Okay, so this is significant also because during Passover, people would come from all over to go to the temple for this observation, for this tradition, for this holiday. And so you ha- they estimate at this time that over 2 million Jewish people would come to Jerusalem. That is a lot of pity. <laughs> pity. People <laughs> packed in. I try to say people packed. That's a lot of people packed into that area. And so there would be people camping in all the roadways leading up to Jerusalem. And so this is important because we're going to read about this crowd. And you can think, well, where did this crowd come from? How did this crowd know he was coming? They were just camped along every road leading in to Jerusalem because there were so many people coming for this observation. All right, let's begin reading the passage. Luke 19, starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. So let's pause right here and talk about why it's so significant. One, that Jesus rode on a donkey and why the disciples started getting excited here. So this is already for Jesus to say, Go get me this colt to ride on. And we know, I know this passage doesn't say it was a donkey, but the other ones tell us the, the colt was actually a donkey. They're starting to get excited. They're like, this feels different. This feels different because this is not something Jesus would normally do. Let me ride in while y'all ride to walk around me to go into Jerusalem. And so the, the disciples are starting to get excited here because they know what this means. They know, they know the prophecies. It was actually prophesied hundreds of years before by a prophet that the king, Zechariah 9.9, see your king comes to you lowly and riding on a donkey. And so Jesus is fulfilling scripture here. So this is very exciting because uh, they're seeing, okay, the, the, the prop, this is the Messiah. This is the one that's coming. The second reason it's significant that Jesus chose a donkey is because it symbolizes peace and not power. It symbolizes uh, that Jesus wasn't trying to make himself look great because we're going to talk about in just a minute how uh, a conquering king would enter Jerusalem with crowds cheering him. He would choose, you know, a big, a horse, something that, that said you had status and wealth and power. You would not pick a donkey. A donkey was an animal of a common people, of poorer people. And so the fact that our Savior chooses to be on something lowly that says, I connect with you, I'm here to serve the poor and the lowly, is very significant about the character of Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Okay, so to ride, to ride in to Jerusalem was always for a purpose. Like I said, this was a tradition that they would do. A conquering king would come back into town and the crowds would gather around and they would scream and they would cheer and they would take off their outer coat. They would take it off, they would strip it off and they would lay it on the ground and they would actually strip the trees of the palm branches and that's where we get Palm Sunday. The other accounts say that it was a palm branch. They would strip the branches off the trees and lay it on the road so that the conquering king or the royalty, whoever it was, would not have to walk on the dirt and this is how they would honor. This was like part of what they would do. And so we see this crowd, not only are the disciples singing, blessed are you, blessed is this, this man, blessed is he coming, we see the disciples singing praises, but we see the crowd start to get hype. The crowd starts to scream and get into it too. Because the day they had waited for, the moment they had waited for, that, they, that stories had been passed down from generation to generation to generation for a thousand years, they see finally happening. They see this prophecy being fulfilled because they have been waiting for the, the next King David. They've been waiting for a king that's going to unite their country, that's going to kick out all the invaders, kick out all the people, because their lands are all divided up now from different rulers. And so they've been waiting for this moment, and they see this man who says he's the Messiah, who's been performing miracles, and here he is riding in, fulfilling prophecy, coming like a conquering king. And so the disciples are praising, and the crowd is getting hyped, and, and the crowd is saying... They are screaming. In the other accounts, we see this, this word. This account seems to focus more on what the disciples were doing, praising his miracles. In the other gospels, we see the crowd is singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And now to us, this word Hosanna, it means we sing it like a praise, like thank you for saving me. Praise you, God, for saving us. But here, when this word was said, it was a cry. It was a cry for help. Save now. Save, we pray. And so this crowd has, we have the disciples who are praising Jesus and we have the crowds of people who are lined up waiting to celebrate Passover, seeing the Messiah come in and they're screaming, save us, save us. This is the guy. This is it. This is the prophecy we've been waiting for. It's time. It's time. He's going to kick out the invading rulers. He is here to save us. Here's our next King David. Here's what the prophecy says. So they're excited. The crowd's going crazy. Now, you notice the, um, the Pharisees, they never miss a moment to point out when something's going wrong, right? So they say, teacher, the, the Pharisees were the religious rulers of that time. And so they wanted to make sure everyone was doing things the way they said to do things. And so they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples because they see what's happening in this crowd. They're like, okay, they, they think you're coming to conquer. They think you're going to come take over. You need to rebuke them for doing this. It's very interesting that Jesus doesn't rebuke the crowd for praising, for screaming, for asking for him to save him, for praising his works. And the reason I find this interesting is because Jesus knows that their praise is shallow. He knows it because he knows in a few days' time, the same crowd 
that's screaming, look at your miracles. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done. Save us. Save us, please. You're our king. You're going to be our Messiah. This same crowd in a couple days is going to start screaming, kill him. Crucify him. Get rid of him. I think it's so significant that Jesus knows this praise is shallow or knows that their hearts are going to turn against him. He knows the sin that's going to happen in a few days' time, and he doesn't rebuke them. And I believe that God gave me a word today specifically for someone. I don't know if it's someone watching online or if it's someone sitting in here, but I believe the Lord told me that there are some of, someone here, some of you that hold back praising God or holding back, coming back to intimacy with God because of shame, because of something you know you've done is wrong. And so you're holding back because you're like, gosh, it's just so hypocritical. I knew better. I knew better than this. And yet I keep doing this or I fell into this thing. So I don't want to come back and look like a hypocrite. And I believe God said for you today, whoever that is, this is what God, this is what Jesus says. Come back. Come back. Come back. There's no judgment waiting for you. We see here in this passage, even when Jesus knew the sin these people were going to commit, even though he knew, really, this is shallow and you're going to all turn on me, he didn't ride past them and say, you hypocrites, you don't really mean this. It's going to be your same face that spits on me in four days' time. Did Jesus do that? No. He let them praise. He let them cry out. And so the word, I believe, for someone here today is God saying, there's no judgment waiting for you if you come back to me. There's no judgment. Because any judgment that you're owed for doing something you knew better, it's already been poured out on Jesus. So come back. And you might be like, well, I never left. I, I, it might not be someone who's left the church, but maybe you've been here all along, but in your heart, you've pulled away from intimacy with him. God says, come back today. All right, let's keep going. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's unbelievable that in this frenzy, this frenzy of people praising, the crowds cheering and being like, Yes, yeah, save us. You're, you're the one. You're the guy. This is it. It's unbelievable to me that Jesus responds by weeping. He's not caught up in the human emotion of affirmation and praise and like, yes, finally, the recognition I deserve. He weeps over them. He's crying over the fact that they are missing who he really is. They're crying because he, they misunderstand what he's really coming to do. They want him to come and conquer. He's not going to come and conquer other people. He's going to let himself be conquered for us. He's weeping because they don't know true peace. If only you knew what true peace is. We have all sorts of ideas of what we think peace is, right? What makes us feel peace is finding the love of our life, having a house paid off, having a retirement saved up for, having children that are successful, having our health. These are things that we think bring us peace. And Jesus says, you don't know true peace if that's what you're looking for. They wanted a king that was going to get rid of the invaders. They, was gonna, well, they wanted a king that was going to let them be the people in power. And Jesus is saying, you don't know. That's not true peace. 
And so often we mistake our comfort and think that that is God's peace. We think that God's peace is really just whatever makes us comfortable, whatever makes us safe. In just a few days' time, this crowd goes from praising him, honoring him, worshiping him, being like, yes, you are the man, you are the king, to crucify him, to kill him, get rid of him. Why did they turn so quickly? I think one of the reasons is because he didn't bring the peace that they wanted. He did not do what they thought he was going to do, what they wanted him to do. Because not only did he not, when, when, when he came into Jerusalem, he didn't turn and go to where the rulers were and say, okay, it's me now, let's start, let's start this fight, let's, let's take over. He, instead of doing that, he turns and the first thing he does when he comes in is he goes to the temple. And he overturns the tables. And so he turns and actually scolds and corrects the very people that think he's going to go overturn the rulers. So wait a minute. We, we want you here to kick out these rulers. You're supposed to be fighting for us. And you come to the temple and you scold us and you turn over our tables because they were selling things as a part of worship. They were making money. They had set up idols in the temple. They wanted him to attack the power, and instead he attacks their greed. He comes in and he attacks their idols. And doesn't Jesus still do this? He, we accept Jesus into our life, and so easily and so quickly we're like, okay, God, now fix my spouse. Pray and fix my spouse. Find me a man. Fix my children. God, please just fix my children. God, fix my parents. God, please help. Fix my parents. They really need you. And Jesus is like, I've come in as king in your life. And I'm coming to your temple. I'm coming to the temple of your heart. And I'm seeing what idols you have set up there. I'm not worrying about your spouse. I'm not worrying about your kids. You invited me in as king. I'm coming to your temple. And I'm going to check out what's going on in there. And I'm going to fashion a whip. And I am going to take down anything in there that does not put me first. And so it's so easy to go from praising him to condemning him because he's not meeting the expectations we had when we thought when we got saved. It's crazy when Jesus says, you know, you, you don't know what true peace is. It's so true because the things we think bring peace are so opposite of what the kingdom of God says brings true peace. We, our idea of peace is avoiding difficult conversations because we don't want to rock the boat. Our idea of peace is divorce for non-biblical purposes. Our idea of peace is not saying anything inappropriately and being politically correct at every moment so the culture mob doesn't come after us. Our idea of peace is never denying myself anything I might want because how cruel to be in such self-denial. But Jesus says that his peace is giving up control to him. That, if, if you like control, giving up control is not something that makes you feel peace inside. <laughs> guilty. Jesus says peace is forgiving awful things that people have done to you. Listen, you want to think someone's crazy? Have them tell you, you know, that awful thing that happened to you? Forgive that person. And that's how you'll have peace. That doesn't make sense. Have you ever had to forgive something terrible? It does not feel like the path of peace to let that go. 
But Jesus says that's what brings true peace. He says living out the truth that it's better to give than receive. That's not the logical path of peace that I'm gonna go without because it's better to see someone else have it. Loving your enemy. Jesus says that's the path to his peace. Saying no to our flesh. Not being controlled by every desire that pops into our mind. That's the path of Jesus' peace. They wanted a king that moved towards power. Oh, gosh, I put these in the wrong order. Okay. Uh, Last verses, verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will bring an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's the final part of scripture we're gonna look at. And this section, those are some tough verses right there. This moment, Jesus was prophesying what was gonna happen. He was just saying. And so this is part of the reason Jesus is weeping. And 40 years later, the prophecy came true. Roman Emperor Titus besieged Jerusalem, totally destroyed the temple. And if you read the historical account of how that went, it was awful. It was absolutely awful what happened. So Jesus is just prophesying what's coming. And Jesus weeps over a perishing city. He weeps that they missed what he came to do. He's weeping that they missed what true peace is. He's weeping at what's coming. I wonder what his disciples must have thought in this moment where it's just a frenzy. The crowd is freaking out. Everyone's praising him. They're like, yes, the disciples are loving it because they're like, this is the moment. We're finally the it people. And they look at Jesus and he's crying, weeping, riding through it. What did they think? Did they think he was like so moved and so happy or could they see that he was broken? The disciples, the crowds, they wanted a king that was moving towards power. But what they actually were getting was a king who was moving towards pain. Jesus saw the pain of these people. He saw what was coming. He saw the pain they were in. And Jesus moves toward it. And that's what Palm Sunday, that's what this image of Jesus on a donkey, that's why we're saying it's significant. This is what it signifies. It signifies our Savior moving in towards people's pain, moving in to a hurting city, going to take on our judgment, to take on our pain. And so this is why we have compassion on broken people. We have compassion on sinful people, what what Christianity would consider sinful, because Jesus did, period. Jesus saw a city, saw a hurting people. Jesus wept over people who were going to kill him in a few days. And so he is our example. He saw our need and he moved towards it. I'm going to end with a story. When, when my, we were little, my brother Jared and I were little, my dad used to let us play on the roof. Seems like a good idea, right? And so whenever he would be working on the roof, 
we could go out there with them. And so Jared was probably six, and I was pro- that would mean I was seven or eight. And so the way, my dad would go up and down a ladder, but we would climb out through the bedroom window. And so we would come out the bedroom window, and so there was the steep part of the roof, and we knew we had to just like walk that ridge line carefully and get to the other section of the house, which is like a Florida room. And so that, that part of the roof was flat. And so in this one time when we were walking out, Jared's in front, so we're walking carefully on the steep part, and we have to go under uh, an overhang, you know, the overhang of a window. And there was a wasp nest, or hornet, not sure which one exactly. And most, if you, if you don't live in Florida, if you're watching us from somewhere else, you might not have all the amazing creatures that we have here. But let me tell you, wasps and hornets, they're something special. So... Not all of them are aggressive. Most of them only sting if you are like really good in their space or accidentally lean up against them. But there are some types, some varieties of hornets that are very aggressive, which means if you even get near their, their nest, they feel the vibrations in the air, they feel the vibrations on the ground, they will come out and attack whatever is getting close to their, you know, little home. And so that's the kind that, that were under this awning. And so as we walk underneath, the first, they just like dive bomb and come on us. And so they get Jared first and they get him in his leg. And so he immediately goes down and is crying because his leg hurts, you know, and he's six. And that's, that's what a child should do when they're stung by a wild animal. And so, but, so he's, he's down here crying, holding his leg. I'm behind him as they're like stinking my face and my arms and my chest over and over. So I'm like, Jared, come on, get up, get up. You got to get up. You got to move. And he's just like, my leg, they got my leg. And so, you know, totally frozen. And I didn't want to go around him and leave him. And so while this screaming is ensuing, uh, my dad comes around the corner from whatever he was doing. And he comes in and he takes, picks up each of us under each arm, one of us under each arm. And then he walks us to the flat part of the roof. And then when we get to the flat part of the roof, he spun around over and over and over with our bodies like flinging through the air to try to get the wasps off us that had been swarming us. And so once the wasps were gone, he carried us down the ladder, each one, to my mother, who I'm sure was thrilled that the whole play on the roof as kids activity didn't end well. I'm sure she saw that coming. Isn't that crazy that opposites usually attract and there's usually one like crazy parent that's just like, sure, we can play on the roof. Sure, you can eat a Slim Jim for dinner every night. Sure. And then there's usually one parent that's like, they're going to die. Let's take it back a couple notches. And that balance is, is perfect. You, you have the odd couples where they're two crazies, and, and when, when you got two wild ones as parents, the whole community is just like, oh God, <laughs> let the children make it to 18. You know, they're going to school with no shoes on, and like, they'll be fine. Or if you have two like really over careful ones, they're like the bubble kids that can't do anything. So opposites are good, even though you drive each other crazy. So the point being that he carries us down, and my last part of that memory is just laying in the living room with ice packs all over and my parents coming with medicine every hour and just being like, can you still breathe? Because they wanted to make sure our airway wasn't closed because, I mean, we were just stung all over. The point of this story that I want to say is that when we were getting stung, a good father doesn't stay on the safe part of the roof and just say, come on, come on, get up, get up, come this way, follow the side, come over here, over here, over here. A good father 
goes into the hornet's nest, goes into the stinging, and allows himself to get stung. My dad's allergic, by the way, so it was kind of, it was very risky. He's very allergic. A good father goes to his children, goes in that suffering, and he provides a way out. He says, this is the way out. I'll, I'll lead you out of it. And this is what Jesus did for us. That image of Jesus, that moment of Jesus on a donkey going into Jerusalem, that was the moment he was going into the hornet's nest. And he was going to allow himself to be stung and to take away that final sting of death, to say, here is the way out. I'm making a way out. I'm going into the stinging, and I will find the way out. The way out from final judgment. Of course, it doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to us when we're Christians. But Jesus is saying, your eternity, the final judgment, the final sting of death, I've made a way out of that. Follow me. And so as Christians, you know that you are taking this call, the same call as our Savior. If you're a Jesus follower, then our call is to move towards people's pain. We don't move away from it. We're not like, sucks to be them, you know, wish, wish they had their life together. We move towards it. We move towards broken people. We move to- towards hurting people. And we say, we have a father that's in this suffering too. And he's made a way out. Follow me. Follow me and I'll show you the way out the father made. That is the calling we have. We have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because that's the call. We look at Jesus, the last week of his life, he goes in to the pain. And the crazy thing is that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through pain. But what Jesus gives you is that peace, that peace that he's saying, you don't know what real peace is. You think peace is having a perfect life where nothing bad's going to happen to you, but my peace is different. My peace means when you go through difficulty, because the consequences of sin are here until God comes back and does away. We, we chose the sin of con- sin, that's the consequence, bad things. But Jesus says, the peace I give is not going to make sense to you, but when you're in, going through difficult times, he gives you a peace. He gives you something that nothing else can. Let's stand and I'll pray. When you invite Jesus as king in your life, when you say, okay, I'm going to let go of control. I'm going to ask forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to let you be my king. He's going to come in different than what you expect. He's going to ask things of you that you would not expect him to ask of you. But the reward of what we get to have a father who goes into suffering with us and shows us the way out, there's nothing to compare. There's no question. But when he comes in as king, he's going to go to your heart. He's going to say, let me clean out this temple. Let me overthrow this table that's made wealth, your comfort, your peace. That's made your appearance. It's made your vanity. That's made that you've made being successful the thing that makes you feel peace and safe and good. 
finding a spouse, having perfect kids, whatever it is that we construct in our hearts, our lives, and we're like, this is good, this is peace, this is success, because I have all these things. Jesus comes in with a whip, not, not to you, but with the, to the idols that we construct. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you just come into our heart. God, throw over any table that I've constructed. Throw over any idol. I've made being a Jesus follower something else. If I've, if I've misunderstood it, if I've missed it, if I've messed it up in any way, Father, I'm saying today I'm reorienting, reorienting myself. And I'm a Jesus follower. And that means I humbly approach this world looking for pain, looking for brokenness, looking for people caught in a wasp's nest. And I'm going to go to them. I'm going to say, here's a way out. By loving them, by serving them, just like you did, Jesus. And when my comfort is disrupted, when it hurts my bank account, when my couch gets dirty, I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to say, look at all. I'm going to say, thank you, God, because I look like you. If I'm hated, if I'm rejected, if I'm misunderstood, it means I look like Jesus. I'm not looking for you to come in and make my life perfect and take away all difficulty. I'm, I'm letting you in because I want to spend eternity with you. I want to be your follower. I want to have a chance to make a difference in this life. To help hurting people know, know their father, know eternity. That when you come back, God, you are going to come back on a horse. It's not going to be a donkey when you return. You come back as a conquering king, and you're going to wipe away all evil, all injustice, and you're going to—it's going to be done. And we get to spend eternity with you, Father. We want as many people as possible to be ready for that moment. Help us, God. Bring people into our lives who need you. Jesus' name, amen.